The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So if you haven't already, I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 14. And just by way of an update, yes, my family is still in the moving process. We originally thought that we would be out of our house by November the 3rd, but now it's looking like December the 3rd is a little bit more accurate. And so for, you know, that month, we've been living out of boxes. My kids are sleeping on mattresses on the floor. Don't feel too bad for them, all right? They, uh, they actually are getting new beds. We, we bought them new beds to go with the new house. They've never had new beds before. They're all so excited. Uh, Karis and Levi have actually slept in the bunk beds that my brother and I slept in growing up. Um, So they're totally excited to get the new beds. However, at this point, with it taking this long, they're beginning to doubt my promises that the new beds are coming because they've been sleeping on the floor. They're like, great. Thanks for the promise about the future, Papa. But what about right now? I actually walked into Karis and Levi's room the other day, and Karis had taken boxes that we had packed and put them underneath her mattress to raise it up off the floor to normal bed height. Like she was taking mattress matters into her own hands. Apparently, my promises about the future just weren't good enough. She needed a bed now. Last week, in John chapter 14, We saw Jesus giving his disciples promises about the future. He was giving them these promises about the future to calm their troubled hearts. Their their hearts had great reason to be troubled. Remember the setting. He's at his last meal with them before he is going to go to the cross to die. And he's told them things about this. He's told them that he's going to be betrayed by one of them. He's told them that he's going away and that they cannot follow him. He's told them that Peter will deny him, that all of them will abandon him. And this troubled them. And it's in the midst of that that he speaks this command in John chapter 14. Look at verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. How? Like in the midst of the darkness he's described coming, and in the midst of him leaving, all they've known for the last three years is life with him. He's called them to a particular way of life. He's called us to a particular way of life. Is it not troubling that we would have to live through this life, through this world, without him? How are they supposed to not let their hearts be troubled? He tells them, believe in God, believe also in me, have faith in me trust in me, rest in me, and to bolster their faith and calm their troubled hearts, he gives them promises for the future. Yes, I'm going away, but I won't stay away. Yes, I'm going to the cross and I will die, but I will rise again. I will ascend to prepare a place for you to be with me and the Father forever, and one day I will come again and take you to be with me. Those are the massive grand, sweeping promises that we looked at last week about their future, about our future. And when we see these promises, our hearts leap and they say yes and amen. Yet, as much joy as these promises give, I have to think that in that moment, in that upper room, I have to think that those disciples must have felt a little bit like my daughter Karis. Like, thanks for the promises about the future, Jesus. 
but what about right now? It's fantastic that one day you'll return to take me to be with you forever, for forever but, but, but what about between now and the one day? This seems like an awfully long way away. How, how am I supposed to live the life you've called me to without you? That troubles my heart. And I mean, as we go throughout the rest of this conversation, things are only going to get more troubling. By the time we get to chapter 15 and verse 18, Jesus is going to tell his disciples that the world will hate them, reject them. By the time we get to chapter 16 and verse 33, he's going to tell them, in this world you will have tribulation. And these things aren't just true for the disciples, they're true for all who follow Christ, for us. Like, how in the world are we supposed to not be troubled in the midst of this? How are we not also supposed to feel, Jesus, it's great that you're coming back one day, but, but how am I supposed to live the life you've called me to live without you? This troubles our hearts. And this is where I want us to see today that Jesus knows our hearts so well. So, he's so ahead of us. He's so ahead of the disciples. In our, in our text today, we're going to see him make a turn, make a shift. He's going he's to turn from those promises about the future to promises for the present. He knows we need those two. He's done it this way on purpose. He, he started with promises about the future precisely because they lay the foundation for promises about the present. Just think about it logically. If, if he has promised to one day take us to be with him, then by implication, if that's guaranteed, he's got to provide everything to get us there. He's got to have some promises for our present, and that's what he aims to unpack for the disciples and us in the rest of chapter 14. Promises for our, to provide all that we need for our present, all we need until he comes back to take us to be with him. Let not your hearts be troubled, Shades Valley. How believe in him that he's going to provide all you need every day, every step, all the way home. I want us to see this together. Unpack it with me. We don't have time to unpack the rest of chapter 14 all the way to verse 31. I started out trying to think that that's what I was going to do this morning, but then I figured everybody wanted to be home before 3. So we're going to make it through verse 14 this morning, and we're just going to unpack two promises. Two promises. Jesus is going to give us a promise about our knowing and a promise about our doing. So first, see it with me. So that our hearts may not be troubled, Jesus gives us a promise about our knowing. So that our hearts may not be troubled, Jesus gives us a promise about our knowing. Let's pick up right where we left off last week, John chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. So Jesus has just given the disciples staggering promises about their future. He's going to go, he's going to prepare a place for them to dwell with he and the Father forever, but not only is he going to go make that place ready, he is the way for us to get there. That's what he says right here. He is the way to the Father. Why? 
Why is Christ the way to the Father? And not just why. Why is he the only way to the Father? He tells us. He says, I am the way to the Father because I am the truth. The truth. In other words, he's the truth about God. He's the one who makes the truth about the Father known to us. We've been told since the first chapter of this gospel that Jesus is the only one who can do that. We've been told no one has ever seen, John 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God the Father except for Christ. Therefore, Christ is the only one who knows what he's like. Christ is the only one who can reveal that, the only one who can make the truth about God known. You cannot go to God the Father, you can't get to God the Father any other way than through Christ because he alone reveals the truth of who the Father is. No other Savior no other religion, no other worldview, no other philosophy. Christ and Christ alone. That is scandalous to say and gloriously true. Christ is the way to the Father because he is the truth and because he is the life. You cannot get to the Father any other way because Jesus is the life. Again, we've been told since John chapter 1, Jesus has life in himself. In other words, no one gave it to him. He's God in the flesh. Jesus has life in himself. He is the one who gave life to all things. Therefore, this gospel is argued he alone can give you eternal life with God. No one else. No one else has life to give. Life itself exists in Christ. He gives it. You, you can't get to God the Father any other way than through Christ because he alone gives eternal life with God. No other savior, no other religion, no other worldview, no other philosophy, Christ and Christ alone. Jesus says no other way to the Father except through him. And then he switches gears just a little bit. He switches gears on the disciples and he basically says to them, you should have already known that. I'm the only way to the Father. You should have already known that. Look at, look at the first part of verse 7 again. If you had known me, I mean, they do know him, don't they? If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. She's saying, if, if you had known me, now they do know Christ in part, but he's saying, if you'd known me in full, if you fully understood who I am, that I am the uncreated one that has life in myself, that's given life to all, that I am God in the... If you, if you knew me and my full identity, if you, if you saw all of that, that I'm God in the flesh, the perfect revelation of who God is to you, then obviously you would know my Father also. If you see me, the Son, you, you would see my Father also, we kind of know how this works from just looking at father-son relationships around us. We kind of know that you can generally get an idea of what a father is like from the way that a son is. If you look at my son, Levi, you may note that he likes Star Wars, and you would be right to assume that I like Star Wars. He loves baseball. I love baseball. He irritates his mom, yet she still loves him. I irritate his mom, yet she still loves me. That's happening right now. Sons can give you an idea of what their fathers are like. This is why we say things like the apple doesn't fall far from the... Or is it chip off the old? Like father, like... Yes, we understand this principle. 
how much more true is this of the Son of God, who is perfectly united with his Father so that he perfectly reveals him. He does what the Father tells him to do. You see his works, you see the works of the Father. He says what the Father says for him to say. If you hear his words, you hear the words of the the Father. When we see him, we see the Father. This is exactly what Jesus is going to say to Philip in verses 8 through 11. Look at verse 8. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. In other words, we are, we're troubled right now. We realize you're trying to get us to not be troubled. You're making promises to us. Show us the Father. You're going away, but if he's here with us and we see him, we know him, we'll be okay. That's enough for us. Show us the Father. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Theological term for that is mutual indwelling. Just throw that out there so you can all throw that around at the next party you're at. Christmas parties. Yeah, let's talk about the mutual indwelling or the co-inhering of the Trinity. You can throw that one out at a Christmas party. You're sure to win friends and influence people. Y'all here this morning? All right. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus says, how can you say, show us the Father? Philip, that's what I've been doing. My words show you his words. My works show you his works. That's a summary of an extensive argument we walked through with Jesus all the way back in John chapter 5. Jesus says, if you see me, you've seen the Father. Not because they are the same person. Don't make that mistake here. Jesus is not saying that he and the Father are the same person. Like like he just has a, a Jesus mask that he puts on. He's got a father mask that he puts on, so if you've seen me, you've technically seen the father. That's not what's going on here. God the Father, God the Son are distinct persons. Distinct persons, they have different roles in a real relationship. Jesus has shown that in what he's just said right here. He says, I don't speak on my own authority. He speaks on the Father's authority. You cannot reverse that sentence. They're different persons with different roles in a real relationship. John 3 and verse 34 tells us that the way that the Father loves the Son is by pouring out the Holy Spirit upon Him without measure so that He is empowered to say all that He tells Him to say and empowered to do all that He tells Him to do. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons yet united. One being one essence. If you want to go Greek, one ousia. Another party word for you. It, one God. It's a tri-unity. We call it the Trinity. This is why Jesus can say, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. If you truly knew who I am, then you would know my Father also. So, Apparently, the problem for these disciples is they don't truly know who Jesus is. So they don't truly know the Father. But that is why his going away is actually good news. 
Look at verse 7 again. I want us to read it all the way to the end. I've been skipping the end all the way up until now. It's because in the end, Jesus drops his first mind-blowing promise about the present. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. From now on, from when on? From now on. From, he's been telling him all night what the now on is. From, from this moment where I'm going to be betrayed, from this moment where I'm going to the cross, from this moment where I'm going away to prepare a place for you, when I go to the cross, when I die, when I rise again, from now on, from the empty tomb forward, you will truly know God and you will truly see God because through all of that, you will truly know me and see me for who I am. They haven't seen it yet. They will see it through the cross and his resurrection. All throughout this gospel, we've been told that the disciples did not understand the full truth of who Jesus was, but they would after he rose from the dead. And now, Jesus says, that moment, those events, that hour, it's arrived from now on. Let not your hearts be troubled from now on, because I've got a, I've got a promise about your knowing. My going away doesn't decrease your ability to know and see God. It actually makes it possible. Do you see Jesus' logic here? Their word is going away. They're, they're, they're not going to see him. They're not going to know him as well. He said the opposite is about to happen. Through my going to the cross, dying and rising and ascending to the right hand of my Father, you will know and see me and the Father in a way you never have before. My going away doesn't decrease your ability to know and see God. It actually makes it possible. Jesus' going to the cross makes it possible for us, for you, to know and see God. Just think about it with me. Jesus' going to the cross makes it possible for you to see God. We cannot see the love of God apart from the cross, not in its fullness, not at its heart. We cannot see how it is that God can be righteous and hold sin to account and yet lovingly forgive sinners. We can't see that. We can't see how it's possible. It's a mystery. The cross makes it visible. We can't see the love of God apart from the cross. It's there that we, we see him take on himself what our what our sin deserved it's there that we see him substitute himself for us it's there that we see his love we see his grace we see his gospel jesus is going to the cross to make it possible for you to see god and jesus is going to the cross to make it possible for you to know god we cannot know god Unless our sin is removed and we are reconciled to God through the cross. It's only through this that now, now we can know the Father through the Son. You want to know and see God the Father? Look at the crucified and resurrected Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6 says it most explicitly that we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
You want to see God, you look at Jesus. I've got good news for you. You can look at Christ in the face every single day. Here. He's made himself known. Here. You want to see him open this word that was inspired by the Holy Spirit and we are promised that the Holy Spirit will wield this word as a living and active sword in our lives and we will hear from God his word. We'll see him, who he is and what he's like. We'll encounter him through the fullest revelation of himself through Christ. This is a promise for your present right now. No matter no matter where you are, no matter what you're facing, no matter what you're going through, no matter what God has called you to, he is with you and you can know him and see him through Christ. You can hear from him through Christ right here in his word. I have people all the time ask me, they'll say, Jonathan, I, I just don't hear from God. I don't hear from God. And there's a sense in which I get what they're saying, but at the same time, I ask them, when's the last time you read your Bible? Open it. Read it out loud hear from God. This is word, encounter Christ. Let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus is going away. doesn't decrease your ability to know and see God. It makes it possible. If he doesn't go away, none of us see and know God. If he doesn't go away, we're all left in the same boat the disciples are in, confused about who he is. His going away makes it possible. It's good news. And he goes away so that we can see and know God. This takes us to our second promise that we need to see. Second, so that our hearts may not be troubled, Jesus gives us a promise about our doing. He gave us a promise about our knowing. Now he gives us a promise about our doing. Look at verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. Because I'm going to the Father. We're seeing a mirror image unfolding in our relationship with Christ as what has unfolded in his relationship with the Father. Jesus has just described to us that that in his knowing and loving the Father, he does the works of the Father, he speaks the words of the Father in order to reveal the Father. Now, because we know God through Christ, We do the same thing. We do the works of Christ to reveal Christ to the world. The promise of our knowing results in the promise about our doing, and it is a mind-blowing promise. Look, Look at it again. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me. In other words, not just the disciples, the 11 that are left in that upper room sitting there listening to him. Not just them. Not just pastors or preachers or prophets or church leaders or elders no whoever believes in me that's all christians ever that's you jesus is talking about you ever wonder if he has ever said anything relevant to your life he's talking about you whoever believes in me will not might Not maybe, not this will happen if they work really hard at it, or if they stir up enough faith. There's no doubt, no question about what he's about to say. Whoever believes in me, all Christians 
will also do the works that I do. Every single Christian will do the works of Christ. That is a promise, guarantee, take it to the bank for your present life. You live doing the works of Christ. Awesome. What does that mean? Perhaps it may be a little bit easier to start with what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that all of us will do miracles. I think that that's the first place our mind jumps to when we hear Jesus say that we'll do the works that he does. When we hear about Jesus' works, we immediately begin to think about his miracles. I mean, in the Gospel of John alone, we've seen him turn water into wine. That'd be a neat party trick. It'd be a real money saver. We've seen him turn water into wine. We've seen him heal a man who was paralyzed for 38 years. We've seen him multiply five loaves and two fishes to feed 5,000, walk on water, give a man born blind sight, and raise somebody from the dead. Quick survey. Anybody here done all those works? I didn't think so. Much less greater works. Neither did any of his disciples. The 11 sitting in that room. Oh, yeah, sure, keep reading the New Testament. And, and through the lives of many of the disciples, miracles are seen, but none of them repeat all of these miraculous, amazing signs of Christ. Not even if you add them all together. Right? Jesus guarantees that everyone will do the works that he is describing right here. Every last one of us. And the New Testament actually makes it explicitly clear, if you want to go look at it later, 1 Corinthians 12, 29, makes it explicitly clear that not all Christians will do miracles. This has got to mean something else. I think that it does, and I think that the Gospel of John makes it clear. Look back up one verse to verse 11. Listen, whenever you encounter a verse like this, this is a favorite verse of people to just kind of rip out. Don't rip these suckers out of context. Explore them in context. What what does he mean by works in context? Just go back up one verse and see what Jesus has to say right there about his own works. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. In that verse, what is the point of Jesus' works? What are they meant to do? They're meant to lead you to faith. They're, they're meant to confirm who he is and lead people to, to faith. The works of Jesus, which, yes, do include his miracles, but they include much more than that. But all of his works, they're all designed to point us to the truth of who he is. His works are meant to lead us to faith. This truth is all over the gospel. After the immediate context, explore the context of the book. And we get to places like John 5 and verse 36. The very works I am doing bear witness about me. John 10, 25, Jesus says, The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. John 10, verse 37, he takes a negative approach. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. Over and over and over again, Jesus' works and faith are connected. His works are meant to, to point people to faith in him. 
these are the works of Christ that every Christian will do. Whoever believes in Jesus will do works that point others to faith in Christ. Period. The entirety of the New Testament testifies to that reality. Jesus has already outlined this in principle for us. Just a few verses earlier. If you just back up, John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Do the works that I have done. That includes the way I've loved. Just like I've loved you, love one another. And what will be the result? Verse 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus says, when you do my works, like loving with my love, when you do my works, you point others to faith in me. Let not your hearts be troubled. My going away doesn't mean my working amongst you ends. That's his point. That's what they're afraid of. He's leaving. Everything they've seen and experienced, it's over. Jesus' movement, over. She says, no, let not your hearts be troubled. My, My going away doesn't mean that my working amongst you ends. Here's my promise for your present. You will continue my works. You'll do the works that I do. But he doesn't stop there, does he? No, he keeps going. And he actually says, greater works than these will he do. Whoever believes, greater works than these because I go to the Father. What does that mean? That we will do greater works than Jesus. I have heard all sorts of explanations of this text. Again, people love to rip this one out of context and just kind of make it mean whatever they want it to mean. And typically, typically, the the most typical explanation is in this ballpark. It goes something like like this, that, that Jesus is saying, we will do more miracles than he did because we're going to be given the Holy Spirit. That is coming. Just a little bit. Jesus will start talking about the Holy Spirit. He hasn't talked about it yet. That's generally the explanation. What does Jesus mean that we'll do greater works than him? It means we'll do more miracles than even he did because all Christians now will have the Holy Spirit. And I have watched that interpretation rip people's faith apart. Because if I just had faith, then God would work miracles through me. He'd heal my friend if I just have faith. And he doesn't. And their faith is shredded. Christ would would bring my children back to God, would bring my spouse to himself. If I would just just have faith, he'd work that miracle. When it doesn't happen, their faith is, is shredded, and this text troubles so many hearts, which is ironic, isn't it, since Jesus spoke it to us so that our hearts might not be troubled? I do not believe for a second that this text means that we're supposed to do more miracles than Jesus because we now have the Holy Spirit. I see three problems with that. 
see a lot more, but I'm only going to go through three, so we're not here for three hours. I see three problems with that. Number one, this text doesn't say more. It says greater. Greek has a perfectly good word for more. It doesn't say we'll do more miracles than Jesus. It says we will do greater works than Christ. Second problem I see with this is that we are not told that the Holy Spirit is given to all, nowhere, nowhere are we told that the Holy Spirit is given to all believers so that they might do miracles. We're explicitly told in 1 Corinthians that all Christians who have all received the Holy Spirit been gifted by him will not all do miracles. Over the next three chapters in John, 14, 15, and 16, we're going to get several reasons given to us by Jesus that he is giving the Holy Spirit to us. None of them have to do with miracles. They all have to do with the Holy Spirit equipping us to know Christ more, to be guided into truth, to to be reminded of all that Christ has taught us. They have to do with us being able to know Christ more and being able to make Christ known. The Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin He will bear witness about Christ through our witness. He will glorify Christ. Nowhere are we told that the Holy Spirit is given to all believers in order that they might do miracles. The third problem I have with thinking that this text means we'll do more miracles than Jesus because we have the Holy Spirit. It's pretty simple. Jesus had the Holy Spirit too. Like in John 3, 34, I quoted it earlier, we're told that God the Father pours out the Spirit upon the Son without measure. In other words, there has never been a more Spirit-filled person than Jesus. The fact that we have the Holy Spirit living in us doesn't mean we'll do greater works than Christ because Christ had the Holy Spirit just like we. I don't see how that changes the situation. No one's more full of the Spirit than Christ. And yet we think that because we've been given the Holy Spirit, that's what it means that we'll do greater works than Jesus. It doesn't, it doesn't follow. So what does it mean? The clue that we need is given at the end of the verse. Greater works than these will he do, will a Christian do, because, hati, gotta love a good causal conjunction. I'm sorry, I geek out over grammar and stuff like that. Y'all hired me, it's y'all's fault. All right, greater works than these will he do because I go to the Father. The same thing that changed our knowing changes our doing. You remember? You remember what changes our knowing? Jesus says from now on, from my leaving on, from my going to the cross and rising from the dead on, because of that, you're going to know God, see God through him. Likewise, because Jesus goes to the Father, we will do greater works than he. That's what has changed. Christ has completed his work. That's the difference. Here's what I think means. Let me just kind of lay it out. Before Jesus went to the Father, all of his works pointed people towards believing that he was the Messiah. They they pointed people towards what he would accomplish in the future. He would die for our sins. He would rise again. 
he would accomplish our salvation. His, his works, all his miracles, his words, everything, it, it pointed their faith forward to something he would accomplish. But now, because he's gone to the Father, because he's completed everything, now our works point people to faith in something that Christ has accomplished. Because he's gone to the Father, finished his work, sat down at his right hand, our works are greater in that they point people to faith in the completed work of Christ. Let me put it this way. Across the street from us, y'all may have noticed there's a building going up out there. It's a piece of place, in case y'all are wondering. And every day that I'm here, I watch this thing being built. I watch guys, construction workers, go over there to work, to to build the thing, and the work that they do points me towards what is coming. I have faith that there will be pizza. It's coming. But once it's completed, like I've been watching them from cornerstone to completion, and and once it's completed, the construction workers will no longer be there. Their job will be done. But there will be others who will now get to work doing something greater than building a pizza joint. They will be building the glorious meat, bread, and cheese, and tomato sauce combo that is known as pizza. It's it's a greater work because it's what the construction was for. From cornerstone to completion, it's all been about the pizza. Christ Jesus is the cornerstone of his church. And all his work has pointed to how he would be laid as the foundation through the giving of his life and through his rising again. And now we get to call people to faith in him and build the church upon the foundation of Christ. This is our greater work. Jesus himself pointed back to, pointed to this all the way back in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, in verse 20, you can look at it in detail later, but it's the only other place in this gospel where the phrase greater works appears. And it occurs when Jesus is telling the religious leaders that they're going to see greater works than miracles. They've just seen him heal a paralytic, and he says, you're going to see greater works than this. And if you follow his line of logic in John 5, he goes on to explain that those greater works will be the resurrection of people who are spiritually dead. They will be raised to true spiritual life in him and live forever with him. Jesus says the greater works would be people finding life in his completed work as our Christ. That's what he said the greater works will be. And those are the greater works he commissions us to at the end of this gospel. You go all the way to the end of this gospel in John chapter 20 and verse 21. Jesus tells his disciples to receive the Holy Spirit for the empowerment of accomplishing his mission. And what's the mission? That he gives them to go and announce to people that there is free forgiveness of sins in his completed work. This this is the greater work to call people to faith in the completed work of Christ. This is every bit as miraculous as raising the dead to life because that's what it is. Do you realize that? 
That's what you do when you call people to faith in Christ. You stand outside of a tomb where there lays a spiritual corpse and you say, come forth. You're raising the, the dead. And the only reason, you're like, Jonathan, that sounds slightly intimidating. And it is because the only reason you can do it is because Christ does it through you. Here's the truth about our greater works. They're not really our works. They're still the works of Christ. He just does them through us. Look at verses 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Don't disconnect that verse from the previous verse. These are verses, again, that we love to rip out of context. Don't, don't disconnect it from the previous verse that, that highlights the work that we have been called to do. What Jesus is saying is as we do the work that he's called us to do, he promises to provide all that we need. This is not a promise that you can just pray for anything and use the magical incantation of Jesus' name and you get it. That's what people say, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Okay. I want a new car. In Jesus' name. All right. I want to get married. In Jesus' name. Shake the. I'm, I'm, I, that's a. That's like a crystal ball. Sorry. Yeah. This was a magic eight ball. Yeah. Yeah. Your your hand motions don't work if you have to explain them. All right. Or we can get more serious. Lord, I. Heal me of my cancer in Jesus' name. Lord, protect my children from any physical harm in Jesus' name. The name of Jesus is not a magical incantation to get whatever we want. That's not what it means to ask something in Jesus' name. To ask in his name means to ask in line with who he is, with his, in line with his will, in line with his desires, in line with his mission, and for his goal, the glory of his Father. Is that not exactly what he says? Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You've been called to greater works to point people to the truth that they can know God like you know God through Christ's completed work. Ask for whatever you need in that mission. Ask for whatever you need to do His will and He will provide it all. You don't have opportunity to point people to Christ. Ask for it. You don't have boldness Ask for it. I don't have the words. Ask for them. This is what this promise is for. In the mission that he's called you to do, he's promised he will give you all that you need. Do you see the massive promises of God for your presence? Until Christ comes again to take us to himself, he has not left you alone. No, by going away, he's actually made it possible for you to know him truly as he is and to know God the Father through him. 
The next time we're in John, which will actually be January because Advent's coming, people. We're getting started on it next week. The next time that we're in the Gospel of John, we'll see that Jesus is actually present with us. The Father is actually present with us in and through the Holy Spirit. But we wouldn't even know him if he had not gone away. Not only that, but by his going away, he's made it possible for you to do greater works than he did to point people to his completed work. There is no greater work than that, no greater mission, no greater purpose, and he will provide you with all that you need. Next time, again, we'll see how he does that in and through the Holy Spirit. But we wouldn't even be able to do his works had he not gone away. Shades, let not your hearts be troubled. Right now, in the present, you can know the one true living God through Jesus Christ. And he will provide you with all you need to do all that he has called you to do. So let not your heart.